please be aware that this is a recording of a writing festival. As such, there are some adult concepts, probably a bit of swearing, and sometimes there might even be some triggering elements. So do be aware of that. If anything does make you feel uncomfortable, please stop listening at any point. Also, we do recommend you pop on some headphones. That way, the only person who can get offended is you. Welcome back to the Rights for Festivals podcast, where we're getting all lit up with the Wollongong Writers Festival. If you'd like to know more about Wollongong Writers Festival, go to www.wollongongwritersfestival.com or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook. This session is First Nations Writers, Speaking Truth, with Curly Saunders, Tony Birch and Alison Whitaker. So, we dare, Nya Curly Saunders, acknowledge Mirani Gananugang, Darawal Alara, Wadi Wadi, Mandung Buringiling Yangu, Digirigurani Ni, Ganai Ganangara, Gadigu Birapai, Yuan Buringiling Fra Yowang Dui. I'm Curly Saunders and I acknowledge the Darawal Alara and Wadi Wadi people um, and their wonderful ancestors. And I acknowledge my ancestors uh, for the strong dreaming that they've provided me and for the guidance that has brought me here to be with you all. And with this wonderful lineup of a panel, oof, I was, when I was writing my notes, I had that beautiful fangirl moment you get where you're like, oh my God, I get paid to do this. Yeah. Um, so thank you, Wollongong Rice Festival, for the incredible opportunity to be here to speak today with Alison and Tony. Um, joining me on the panel is proud Gomorrah woman and lawyer, academic, Alison Whitaker, a Fulbright scholar who studied at Harvard and was the Dean Scholar in Race, Gender and Criminal Law, and the poet behind the award-winning collection, Black Work. And you did just win a big, big award. So can we just have a quick round of applause and whatever that? Thank you so much. And I, I missed the blackout, but it was a big, big, nice night for, for First Nations writers. Yeah. yeah. And Tony Birch, the award-winning author of short stories and three novels, including the newly released The White Girl, which I haven't had a chance to read, but I've been reading all of the reviews and I can't wait to sink my teeth into it. Um, and Tony was awarded the Patrick White Literary Award for your contribution to Australian literature and is a professorial research fellow at the Victorian University. So... In very good hands. Um, before we start, Naganagula walking and working together between Babara and Gadu, the mountains and the sea, I want to start with acknowledging safer spaces. And I want to establish this place as Bumajuril, which is a place of healing. I've no doubt that today we'll be walking through some tricky territory. And, and at times, this will be painful and hurtful and harmful. And so I want to create that space and acknowledge that we're all in it together. And if any time you need to self-care, please do so with being mindful of the wonderful writers on this panel. When asking questions, please be aware of the footing of them and the impact that they might have before you raise your hand. And um, I'd also like to acknowledge the broader things that are happening in our world at the moment. Our landscape Gamalanga Daari, Mother Earth is on fire, um, and there's big things happening in the justice world, which hopefully Alison might touch on a little bit. Um, and also to acknowledge the elders who have made it possible for us to have this really truthful, honest yarn today um, about truth speaking. So, Tony and Alison, let's hear from you. The theme for the festival is all lit up, and lit brings to mind illumination, which to me brings to mind truth. And the notion of truth speaking and how that manifests in creative work is fascinating for me. So I was wondering if you could start by telling us about yourself. What is your truth and how does that become embodied in your work creatively and with regards to your research? Both of you at the same sure. time. <laughs> Jump in. Let's do it. Um, so as, as Curly said, my name is Alison Whitaker. I'm a Gomoroi woman. I grew up on the Namoi, which is a really massive river um, it kind of runs up the northwest of New South Wales. Um, that river is running dry in parts, and I think it would be remiss of me to not actually mention that today because that's kind of come in a way to inform my truth. It gives a real urgency to everything that I want to say today because the words that we bring to you may not directly have an impact, but they come from a place of, um, I, I think, a desire for action on what's happening to country. Um, and while it's inappropriate for me to speak 
to country while I'm in this place. Um, I just think it's important to turn our minds to the broader country, um, the broader state of things and how they've come to be. Um, and to do that with courage, acknowledging the various ways in which we're complicit. Um, in terms of a, a truth, Curly, as soon as you sent through this question, I was really kind of like playing it over in my mind. Yeah. Um, it feels like the, the older I get, and I'm not that old, um, is like the, the more uncertain I am of what a truth is. And um, it seemed like when I was a teenager, I was really aware of these guiding principles that I had in my life and seemed, I thought, relatively good at living by them. But the more you kind of look back on them, you realize that at the time that you're living, your truth kind of becomes unrecognizable to you. Um, so that's a difficult thing to when you're trying to work with integrity uh, and with sincerity, kind of understanding where you're coming from in that moment is close to impossible. And that's probably why Adele writes her albums <laughs> about the various ages a couple of years after. Sorry, I just got stuck with Adele. Um, <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so I'm Tony Birch. Um, I'm 62, so I'm very, very old for an Aboriginal man. And I've spent my whole life in the inner city of Melbourne. Um, a friend of mine introduced me at the Essendon Football Club one day as a Fitzroy Black, which I'd actually never heard of. But So I identify as a Fitzroy Black. I really like it because it's a gritty term. But the important things to note about where I came from and what impact that has, firstly, in the sense of identity, um, as opposed to how identity is framed now, one of the things I would say about growing up in the 60s in Fitzroy is that older Aboriginal people, particularly women, but not only women, but particularly women, would never let a young Aboriginal person fall through the cracks. So that if you came from a small family like mine or a family that had been um, grossly dislocated like mine, there are always older Aboriginal women around to, to, in a sense, hold you in that community and rather than be lost to it, which is the case that can occur if you, if you feel that dislocation. The other thing that's relevant is because I grew up in the inner city, I... I literally had no real sense of country as a lived experience and no real sense of what it meant to think about ecology, environment, think about environmental degradation, which is sort of, well, not odd, but the dramatic change is that um, I'm four and a half years into a five-year professorial fellowship where my work is dedicated to climate justice and climate change. So one of the things that happened to me from a young adult until now is a gradual understanding not only of the importance of country but the importance of, of fighting for country. So that is one of my premier objectives. And I suppose in relation to truth-telling, I, if I just think as a creative writer here just briefly and a creative writing teacher, I used to always start because I taught writing at um, University of Melbourne for about 12 years and I always used to ask students at the first lecture, well, you know, what's your ethics, your ethical commandment? You know, an 18-year-old kids, they don't have ethical commandments, thank God. But, um, and they didn't have one, which was, that wasn't the problem. I say, come back next week with a statement that will guide your writing through life. And mine has always been, and I, I deliberately, we should set the bar high. I'm not saying, I'm not making an egotistical statement, this is who I am. But mine was to never misrepresent. So when I think about truth-telling, truth isn't simply relative, but... The important issue is, is not to misrepresent whether you're writing fictional characters or whether you're writing fact and to be really ethical around those. So when you're wrong, when you've got to hold up and say, well, I could make this political argument here and win that argument, but it would be actually unethical to do so, to take that, um, to take that very seriously. And also it, it, it enters, I think, with both our work around where we are as you know, being regarded, the three of us, sorry, as, as Aboriginal writers is, you know, it does come with a, a really acute sense of responsibility so that in this novel that I've written, I, I would feel that in all my work I try to act responsibly but for me in writing this novel it was very acute to me not only to not, not misrepresent, to be very responsible to the issues that I was writing to because I know that there is an Aboriginal... There are Aboriginal nations out there across Australia who are going to see this book and their response to it will be very important because they are both the most appreciative readers you get and the sharpest critics mm. and you have to be conversant with that and accept that as part of that comes with the turf of being an Aboriginal writer. Whether you want that or not, it, it's always going to be there. <laughs> that moment of 
Yeah, ethical commandment. I'm going home to write one. Um, I think we all should. Yeah. And I guess my next question was around, I know when I, working through Kindred, the girl who started the book, um, and this has been very much kind of a journal almost, a poetic journal of intergenerational healing of the traumas within my family. Um, but I feel like the person who started that book has has a very different identity to the woman who finished that book. And um, each work as I've moved through them, they, they have changed me in some way or the growth that I've had has, you know, um, changed the story. And I'm wondering about that reciprocal process between your ethical commandment or your truth telling and your creative process how do they feed and fuel each other and how has that changed over time and do you have any idea of what that will look like for your next work so I kind of um was in your position um going through Mangabala working with them as a, a really fantastic publisher um, I entered through the, the State Library of Queensland's Black and Right program. And if there are any um, mob in the audience who have a publishing-ready manuscript or even one that's just slightly shy of it, definitely encourage you to enter and come yarn with me after. Um, but I kind of launched that process from a place of vulnerability where I thought two things. Um, one, I really needed 10 grand. <laughs> and um, the fellowship had... 10 grand <laughs> was nice. Um, I, was, I was kind of um, in a situation where I was really, really desperate to have it. I was on the verge of homelessness, had no kind of stable place to go, been couch surfing for a long time and had no way of getting income. Um, and so it was kind of this, um, I don't want to say maniacal, it's, it was this frenzied rush um, towards the end to get a manuscript in. And to do that, I had to draw from something that was really easily accessible to me. And I guess that's probably at the time what I would call my truth. And I had this model for social change based on my truth, which was like about excising trauma uh, to a non-Indigenous public so they could understand um, what at the time I thought was a very marginal experience of being Aboriginal and queer. And it felt strange at the time and seems kind of even more strange to me now that um, I thought this because <laughs> um, there was no real mystery around the experience of Indigenous queer people at the time and um, the root of colonialism and queer phobia is not the idea that they don't know us or should know us better. And so as a social change model, it kind of flopped. Um, but it also made me feel really vulnerable and I regret, I think, um, the amount of truth I kind of put on that page, partly because um, I think I was in a, a, a weird place where I knew I could leverage trauma for money. Um, yeah. <laughs> and secondly, I think because I had to acknowledge at the time, which I don't think I had clear enough eyes to do so, that there were other people's truths in there. And when you're telling your story, you're never just telling your story. Um, and I regret very sincerely the way that I approached that. And I think that's a tension that's facing a lot of Indigenous writers, especially with this renewed attention towards um, an emerging um, new generation of voices that they're put in this position, um, which I can't remember the author who coined this term, the first person industrial complex, where truth telling and vulnerability are really valued um, until it's time to actually get paid for them. And there's a lot of pressure to put yourself there. You got to clap when I finish now. <laughs> um, one of the things, in the sense of that trajectory as a writer that's interesting from my perspective, and it is, again, partly around identity. I'd been working as an academic for 10 years, from about 1996, till I published my first book in 2006. Now, when that book came out, there is a really clear sense of the first-person voice of this boy recognising his own colour, but it is not a book about what we might call Aboriginality. The first review of that book actually asked a, well, a sort of rhetorical question about hiding my identity, which was really odd because I was publishing work as an Aboriginal academic on Aboriginal issues for 10 years so I was, and I was giving, you know, going to conferences, so I wasn't hiding anywhere. What's important for me to note from that first book to this book, this is the first whole book where, which is dominated by Aboriginal characters and Aboriginal issues. And I wouldn't have recognised it at the time, but... I think what has happened is that 
it took me this long to actually feel completely comfortable to command that material. And I did it in a, I hope, in a patient way. So in my short story collections and in one of my novels, Ghost River, there's, you know, there's Aboriginal presence, but this is much more an Aboriginal novel. I know that's a loaded term, but so I was, I suppose I've been satisfied with the patience of that. That's the first thing. And I suppose the other one, which is much more personal, and as we get older, we get, I don't mean softer in the belly, but we get, some of us get less angry. Even Gary Foley told me the other day he's not going to, he's getting less angry. I'll, yeah. But, but, um, I'll get your name and address afterwards. Um, what I have found, this novel is, it's about an Aboriginal grandmother and granddaughter. It's set around a time when, the destruction caused by child removals is affecting generations of Aboriginal people and we know about that violence. But I, I desperately wanted this to be a book about love and tenderness. And not only because of that's how I wanted to represent this relationship, but I would say at a personal level what has changed in me is that my work has become more driven by tenderness so that some of the visceral nature of some of my short stories in particular. It's not that I can't write them creatively. I don't want to write them anymore. And that leads to then, I suppose, what it is that writing is in you. So my younger brother, one of my younger brothers died really suddenly this year and it was just a shock to me and a shock to the family. And initially I had this urge to write about him and then I thought I can't do that. I felt exploitative, as yeah, writers do. And then it kept coming back to me, kept coming back to me that there was something valuable in doing that. And so I spoke to my sisters and my mum about it and I wrote a very short piece. And I've now written three what, for better of a term, are sort of walking climate grief essays but what I've discovered in that process is not only that it's a gr about grief and healing, again, it's about the reason I wanted to write about my brother is to show the great tenderness in him so that mm. I think my my objective as a writer for my readers and who I, the way I feel about myself is that I, I, can't, I can't write about anger anymore. Mm. It, it's, for me, it... I think I found it, and that notion of truth-telling is interesting because when maybe when you're younger or when you're starting out, you have an angry truth that you need to get out there as Aboriginal people, which is legitimate, mm -hmm. but it be, can become really self-destructive where you're the one who's left drained and emptied out by it, and then you have to say, well, did it really have much impact anyway? So that, yeah, Wayne Atkinson, an Aboriginal man I know really well, says... Yeah, what life for blackfellas in the public arena is like, it's like putting out spot fires and every time you put a fire out, one starts up somewhere else and in the end you're running around trying to control a bushfire and it just burns you out. Mm. So I, part of it is, I suppose, a, a, an issue of self-protection, which I wouldn't have recognised when I started. And don't clap that because that is not worthy of a clap. <laughs> Go on. Thank you. Um, and I just want to acknowledge the vulnerability hangover that you mm. both kind of talked to with that idea of, you know, um, and maybe you've experienced to it as creative people when you release a work out into the world and you're like, oh, God, they've seen me. I know after I put Kindred out there was that moment of like, oh, people are going to know about my family's history and they're going to know that I felt deeply disconnected from my culture and language and history um, because of the past things that have happened in our nation and all of the policies. Um, and so, yeah, and I have people come to me often and say, oh, that's, that's really brave or courageous. And I think in some ways that is really brave and courageous. Um, and in other ways it's just very honest. And isn't it lovely to meet an audience um, at that heart space? And so thank you for creating works from heart spaces. Um, and I know that, yeah, I, I touched on culture and history and language, and I was wondering if these elements come into your work in your truth-speaking, um, both in research and in, in writing. Um, so for the last little bit, I've been kind of trying to move away from turning inward um, in both my literary and scholarly practice and kind of turn instead kind of that um, angry energy outward 
um, to, I think, the, the places where it's probably most deserved and most productive. Um, so one place that I've been doing that is kind of, it sounds weird, but in law. So I guess with my other hat on, I'm a, a lawyer and a law academic. And the space that I work in is kind of preoccupied with um, inquests and royal commissions, which at their heart are about storytelling. Um, the amount of truth, I think, structurally that families uh, of people who've died in custody especially are expected to lay bare to a court is really dehumanising. Um, so yesterday I was at the inquest into the death of David Dungay Jr. He was a, a young man who was killed uh, in Long Bay Jail in 2015. The findings were handed down yesterday, close to four years after his death. Um, he was killed by several officers and nurses um, because he was eating a packet of biscuits and they wanted him to stop. It was a really grueling thing to watch that four-year-long process stretch out. And in the end, um, the, the fruits of the family's deep cooperation and dignity, as well as strategic use of the coronial process, was that the coroner kind of turned up to court read without making eye contact with anybody from a piece of paper. Um, and the most he said about um, Mr. Dungay Jr. as a person was that he um, played rugby, that he finished his school certificate, um, and that he was good at poetry. And kind of thinking about that as the remaining record of David um, and how the coroner, at the end of delivering his decisions, read out a poem that was delivered by his sister at the inquest as if that was a gesture towards his humanity. Just kind of reminds me of what it means to be examined and known and that sometimes closing off um, a door to being known is a good strategic move. Um, but also that there's kind of an inherent dignity in articulating sometimes who you are and um, that harm is being done to you. So that's kind of a, a tricky balance that I'm trying to get at. Um, but at the moment, I think I'm becoming much more reserved in how inward I look and whether um, truth-telling is actually necessary for us in a strategic sense or if we should be adopting what's um, often called strategic essentialism, where we adopt particular truths regardless of whether or not they're real um, because it advances our agenda to have the settler colony believe them of us. Yeah, I mean, just um, three things. The first thing is that, that it might seem irrelevant, but one of the things that I stopped doing, and I, and this is, please, never a criticism of other Aboriginal people, I don't, when I, I don't tell, I don't say who my family is, where I'm from, any of that. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I found that debilitating because you would get up and you you would talk about that, and that is a gesture to invite people to share, and then and not this is the greatest audience I've ever had, and then to have really insulting comments thrown at you in questions, and afterwards, particularly afterwards, people who don't have the courage to speak up, they'll just buttonhole you and and really seriously sort of be really close up, and you know, I think if 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 I've got to deal with that in public life. Why I'm not giving my story. That itself becomes self-defeating. Um, it's interesting about how culture and history and research have affected my work. So my, my grandmother was taken from her mother when she was very young and she was just given to the local public and there wasn't any formal adoption, anything. In, you know, in Tasmania, this is just before the First World War, you, know, you just give Aboriginal kids away and you don't have to worry about... <laughs> documenting what you're doing. So my grandmother had little, very little written history, no birth certificate, um, no formal name for her mum, which we found out later on. And then when she escaped the public and then came to Victoria, I have a photograph of my grandmother when she was about to go to prison, one of those classic mug shots. And across the top is four of her aliases. She had about six aliases that we know of. And so she's a woman who for her whole life was on the run She's secretive. She's not wanting to be found out because she doesn't want to end up. And her whole life she's in fear of being captured again. Mm. Uh, a wonderful woman, like one of her names was Bordeaux and I said, where'd you get that shit off a wine bottle? Um, <laughs> so she's a great woman and I was very lucky to live next door to all my childhood and she didn't die till I was in my 40s, so we're very close. But it led me in my role as an academic to start to look into Aboriginal women and removals and my... I've done a lot of work and written about Aboriginal women's writing in Victoria from missions and reserves 
And these women were so dynamic and courageous and they wrote extensively to the Chief Secretary, to the Protector of Aborigines or the Welfare Board as it became Victoria and just such tenacious women. And then I followed through two particular families, one of them a very well-known Victoria family that I won't name, but I've worked with that family um, on letters from great aunts of people I know. And these two women wrote for about 20 years to try and get a daughter back, 20 years. And then at one stage, because the women were so persistent in having their daughter returned, she was taken from a reserve which was about 30 kilometres from the reserve they were on and and sent to Melbourne, which was about 300 kilometres away, so they would never see her again. So when I decided to write The White Girl, one of the objectives was obviously to create this very strong Aboriginal matriarch, you know, Dead Brown, but it was to write about it from the other perspective of what, what happens in that time of the lives of Aboriginal women before their kids are taken, when they're under that constant threat of being taken. And then to, seems a bit odd decision, to not just fall into this, to the um, easy trope of those women becoming the victims of colonial violence. So that's why in the book I focus on on the love between the, the women who are in that book because I didn't want them just to become sort of the refuse of, of that. I mean, if you've if people in the audience, if you see much Australian film, particularly from the 70s and 80s, if there is an Aboriginal woman in the film, you'll invariably she'll never be named. She'll be raped and she was just a disposable sort of scene in the film so that it was to avoid the women becoming this and that people like Odette Brown to me represented all those women that I that I'd written about who who just never give up and yeah when you think of truth-telling the ultimate insult to Aboriginal truth-telling and this goes to I think there's probably one of the traumas that Aboriginal women in particular go through as being the not only the repositories or the custodians of our memory, the, the custodians of colonial violence. And I remember, and I know women personally who gave evidence to the Bring Them Home Inquiry in 1997 on the forced removal of Aboriginal children that said it's important to do this because otherwise it will be forgotten. And then those same women were, were vilified by the Prime Minister, John Howard, by the Governor-General, and people often forget this, People, please remember this, that the Governor-General was a Labor leader, ex-Labor leader called Bill Hayden. Bill Hayden, when he was Governor-General, went and gave a talk to um, commencement students at the University of Tasmania. And in that speech, which is available, Bill Hayden said that the Aboriginal women who'd given evidence to the Bring Them Home reported suffered from false memory syndrome. So when you consider what these women have done to put their lives on the line and be insulted like that Mm. is something, again, that I've always thought part of my responsibility or part of my desire is to to give value to them. And and someone said to me, you know, Odette Brown's a really heroic character. You wouldn't know that at the start of a novel. I said, yeah, I knew it before I'd written the word that this is what she's going to be, you know. And so that, that, that... that drive is is because of the work those women did. Thank you. Um, I had I have a question, but I'm going to postpone it because something you said about the notion of collective truth speaking and putting our personal truth on hold to talk to the broader truth or um, a call for action within community, I think is something um, that we're all working towards. There is very much a united front on the way that we want to um, bring around awareness or or, or make people accountable. Um, and I was just wondering, is there a particular collective truth or united truth that either of you are, are focusing on at the moment in your research and, and work? And can you tell us more about that and, and maybe help us to know the right way for us to move forward if there's yeah any advice or, or something we should be aware of? Um, yeah, I guess the, the hard thing with that is that a collective truth, um, as a young person not in a position to really really name, um, the thing I find myself focusing more and more on is um, that 
we can be truth tellers, not just of our own experience, but we have genuine expertise, um, especially as Aboriginal women, to testify to the violence of the colony without having that constitute the whole body of knowledge that we can have. Um, It recalls... um, Stephanie Gilbert, uh, Dr. Stephanie Gilbert, is an academic on um, race um, and how it's bodily experienced by Aboriginal people, especially members of the Stolen Generations. And um, something you said recalled um, an article she wrote about her experience of truth-telling in the Bringing Them Home report where um, she gave her story to the commission um, and it had been published. And then a couple of years later when she went back to do her PhD, um, using her kind of uh, personal experience as a launching point to develop theories of racialization, she was actually denied access to her own testimony on the grounds that um, it could be a contempt of the process um, or that she could have defamed people in it and they couldn't be said to be publishing it. And so when she eventually did get hold of her testimony, it cost her about two weeks of work time fighting for it in the archives. Um, and, it, of course, in addition to that, had to pay an access fee for um, young white staffers to go through and omit the names that she already knew because those were her words. Um, so, yeah, kind of striking up this um, sense of being able to authoritatively theorise about what the colony looks like based on our own experiences is really, really powerful. Uh, it's also something that can be taken away from us really quickly and um, it is hard, therefore, I think, to know what's a, a good use of story, what's a good use of truth, um, and in whose interest is the truth serving? I think in the in the pub there are a couple of issues. I think in the public realm, more important than collective truth is collective respect. So that we're fine. So if you go to writers' festivals, there's a great huge group of Aboriginal writers now, particularly the bigger ones. There'll be half a dozen of you, and you sort of follow each other around like a sort of ragged bunch, and you back each other up. And so when I first went to writers' festival twenty years ago, you'd be the only one there, and you know you start upsetting the audience and. Yeah, it's like, where's my brother? You know, <laughs> sort of you, you copping it and sort of ducking and weaving. But now if you're going to do a difficult session and you know that some you know, right-wingers are going to turn up, your troops are going to be there, you know, and so you feel safer. It's like I said at a talk one night when Richard Franklin turned up. I said, it's like, you know, kids said, I'm going to beat you up after school and when you get outside the gate, your big brother just happens to turn up at the gate. <laughs> yeah, God. Um, but when I say collective respect, the other issue now is, yeah, and I, I'll, I'm not trying to say this again egotistically, as public intellectuals, is that you've got to have respect for our Aboriginal people who have a different view than you and not to get into a so slangy match and respect intellectual debate and intellectual difference so none of us can speak for the whole. So I wrote an essay for Australian Book Review on um, the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith um, and Anita Heiss and I have a very a different viewpoint over that book, um, Keneally's book and the essay, but I love Anita and respect her. So when we had a discussion and Jared Thomas, Blackfell from South Australia, was there, it wasn't an argument. It's three Aboriginal people discussing a very seminal text and having very different viewpoints. And I was arguing why I valued the book. And then Anita, who I think won the argument, just said, well, Tony, you did know he's written a book that posits an Aboriginal man as a serial killer. That's a problem. (laughs) So that is important. But there is an issue of collective truth that I think is really important to my work around climate change, which is my day job. And in this current frenzied, well, for lack of a better word, debate around climate, we have on one side a a, a response of hysteria because there's no more defence for conservatives to deny climate change, so they become hysterical. And then if you go to Aboriginal communities right across Australia, contemporary communities, look at it historically, you could go to a really important elder, you could go to a young kid in a youth detention centre and there is a collective truth held by every Aboriginal person I know and this is that country is matters, country is vital, we're here to support country, not to command it. And that is something that we all know, whether we're professorial fellows or a kid on the street and this is what we need to get through to a greater public. There's something here you need to understand that you're getting wrong. And at the moment, it's very hard to get a lot of people to understand that. So I 
I changed a bit in this five years of the fellowship from wanting to argue for Aboriginal knowledge to saying now philosophically you need to understand that this knowledge comes from a philosophy that is the only way forward if you're willing to listen and colonial society in some levels is not yet willing to listen and take advice. I mean, it's hard for people to take advice from Aboriginal people when the colonial mindset is about essentially the dispossession of Aboriginal people. Thank you. Um, and I guess my next question was on landscape and how that shows in your work. So um, you've sort of touched on it already, but can you expand on that or add to it, Alison, Tony? Um, how does how is landscaped and, and truth speaking about landscape um, yeah, evolved in your work? Oh, I suppose it's, it's – and I said I you know, spent all my childhood and teenage years in the inner city. So, yeah, my first book is – well, a lot of my work is inner city-based. So if I think about landscape or place, I mean generally whatever I'm writing about, and of course this novel is set in a regional town and it's much, it's a much more different physical and spiritual environment, is that I've always, and I always taught this, that landscape or place is not a characteristic of a story, it is a character of a story. So I say to students, your character is not standing in front of blue screen that someone's going to fill in later on. You've got to bring that to the foreground because what we know is we, 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 we react and re- we relate to those physical environments differently. And, and it, it, this is not rocket science. You know, if you live in Wollongong, like I, I was saying before, when I choose which writers festivals I go to, I, I go, where can I go for a decent run? So Wollongong is good for that. There's no football games on this weekend in Melbourne, so if Carlton's playing away, I'll come. If they're playing at home, I won't. Um, but, yeah, you go down to the coast down here and you walk along that coast, there's an invitation to engage with, you know, the, the sea, the smell, the wind, the air. So to, if you were to write a story based around this coastline, you can't not evoke um, that landscape as vital. And, of course, if you settle in steelworks at Port Kembler, that grittiness, it's a different environment. So, and imagine, you know, a novel that work between those two, you've got to think of them as characters. And for me that's – I think that's been a natural inclination because I'm a mad walker. I mean, I am a mad, but um, <laughs> I walk everywhere. Um, I've just finished these three walking essays. I've always been attracted to walking essays. I'm reading a book on walking at the moment. And I think to know a place as Aboriginal people is that you walk and you, you don't drive or even – run sometimes so I sometimes love to run a place but if I really want to think about a place you've got to walk in it and get in it I mean what else is there to say <laughs> um I think something I've struggled with is um not only how the country is the story but how it's possible to write fiction in that context I would love to know your experience, but I'm not a fiction writer for this very reason, as every time I try to um, do it, it's, there's a specificity to it in that I can't um, create place, I can't. And then so everything I end up writing ends up becoming non-fiction. It's a really weird kind of difficult thing to train. I mean, that's interesting, though, just from a, if there's any young writers in the audience, like, again, teaching writing for so long, when you teach a student over a number of years and you might have them in a fiction course or a non-fiction course, you start to think, yeah, this person is that. Mm. And it's hard to understand because that comes from a creative space that is not self-conscious mm. so that I always found out very early this student at this stage of their life is never going to write a short story because they'd be doing a short fiction class and you know after 5,000 words they haven't got started. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and, they will, and they will say, they will say oh, this is weird, I've met novelists, really great novelists at festivals, and I just say, have you ever written a short story? And they've said, I, couldn't, I wouldn't know how to do it. And you think, wow. And you don't realise that. So for me, the reason I say that, they're like, there are genres that I've tried to work in and things that I think and I just can't like I can't do a review or I can't do a review of someone else's book in the Sydney <laughs> Sydney review of books um, um, I can't do I can't do a review I just end up well f- for a start unlike you I'm a coward so I write these sycophantic <laughs> everything is good but I can't in- I can't intellectually grasp the material in a way that a good reviewer like yourself can do. So 
it's you're sources looking for courses. For a list okay. of really great books, make sure you check out Alison's reviews. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how are we disseminating between the truth and the truth that's being spoken um, and the broader voices that criticise that truth, more or less? Yeah. I think it's just encouraging a critical voice in media literacy um, and accepting that ugh, it's going to sound a bit like weird but accepting that media literacy is not the media literacy that we grew up in people are having to become trained in um, identifying what's kind of AI generated text um, what's AI generated images it's a really difficult time to be focusing on the truth because truth telling at the moment seems to be kind of a a euphemism for historical recounts that are challenging in some way when truth-telling is such a, a more varied process. Um, and I think that also creates the sense that truth-telling and what is important and what's worth reading and therefore what gets the metrics is stuff that is inflammatory in some way. Um, so, yeah, the exercise of doing truth-telling in that context I think is really, really difficult and it's something we're going to be working out for a long time. Yeah, I mean, look... In part, we're in a really dangerous world. Um, I was listening to a podcast a couple of Sundays ago on the BBC and there's a voice recognition technology. This one, they only have to feed about 30 sentences of any one's voice in. They can get it exact. It's not like that robotic voice you get. So they actually used Donald Trump's voice and then they had a script of him saying something benevolent, so that gave it away. But the voice... <laughs> the voice... The voice itself was pitch perfect, frighteningly pitch perfect. You, you wouldn't think it's an impersonator. This, it was just Donald Trump. And that whole thing about facial change, so we're in a really difficult, scary place. I understand that. It's also evident in social media. So I, I have five kids and my youngest daughter is really social media junkie and takes it too seriously. So every catastrophe, whether real, imagined or fake, she comes downstairs and goes, Dad, yeah, we're, we're, we're screwed because of this and then you find out that was not the case. The issue which is the only way I think to counteract that is so for someone like me who works in climate to find really invaluable information about climate change, the science, ethical responses, indigenous knowledge, it's, it's everywhere. The good stuff is everywhere and you have to filter and sift through all the chaff to get to it. But it is there. But like anyone else who now reads my morning newspapers online, you're just bombarded with rubbish as well and you can easily be sucked into that. So that's that's a real problem. The only ethical thing I can fall back on, again, is that when I used to teach creative writing, I used to teach creative nonfiction, students would often, this is a dilemma, yeah, where does the truth begin and end in nonfiction? When do you slip into fiction? This is the endless discussion. And I say to students, who's the first person to know when you're making it up? The writer. And I'd say, okay, I'm a fiction writer, I'm an essayist, I'm a poet. If I'm writing non-fiction, I do it because that's a genre I've chosen to work in. If I slip into fiction, it's me who is the, the loser of that because I've, I've, I don't have the creative know-how to stick with in the, the confines of the genre. So when you know you're making up, don't. Now, that's, that's, it's not going to answer your question because you say, well, hang on, Donald Trump doesn't have that. Um, inhibition and millions of people now don't so it, it is genuinely concerning I don't know how to deal with it at a society level I only know how to respond to it well personally and with people I interact with I mean this is sort of off point in a way but it's relative to when we think of the pervasiveness of social media we've had some horrific crimes against women in Melbourne of recent years and you know we have horrific crimes against women in endemic in Australia and we have governments who say we have to change the way we you know the images of women the projection of women at the same time that I know because my kids are in school every 15 year old kid can get access to the most vile pornography that 10 years ago would have been seen as illegal so how do I how do you combat or how do you project an image when you know that kids are subject willingly or otherwise to this invasiveness and to consider what does what is that doing i'm not saying it's turning them into monsters i'm just thinking what what is that doing to their sense of a politician telling them yeah we have to have more positive images of women in the media i mean it's it must be very very confusing for young people to deal with all these issues that you're talking about and 
and I, I've said this a lot recently, to be a young person now I reckon will be so, so tough because of those, those issues that we never had to deal with. It's a reminder too of just um, how small a role we play as, you know, in like the modern way of describing it as like content creators in the production of truth. Yeah. Like the truth telling is actually what happens in the act of listening um, and once it's kind of released I don't know if I remember the truth, it. <laughs> the truth telling is what actually happens in the act of listening. Ooh. Oh, sorry. Keep going. Ooh, okay. I feel like I've, um, you know, those newspaper quotes kind of come out. Anyway, I was like, wow, we should have a podcast, but we'll talk about that later. Um, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let, let's talk about that off stage. Um, yeah, so the act of truth telling kind of happens when you unleash your account out there in whatever form and um, to some extent that can become weaponized and that's something I'm really, really sensitive um, to I think at the moment is that um, lots of people are willing to make your truth their truth um, because it's politically convenient or because it's expedient um, or because they have a particular drive and in some ways that's good. I enjoy um, the willful misinterpretation of my work when it's put towards the ends that I like. <laughs> um, <laughs> But when it's put towards other ends, I really hate it. Um, and that's the, the vulnerability that we have. Yeah, I know we have some teachers in the audience and on that idea of um, our truths being misinterpreted, um, is there any skills that you think teachers can use in their classrooms to be aware of like, oh, that's, that's a mistruth they're being told or, oh, we should check out this? Well, I've got one. This is not Victoria, but... The um, misconceptions of our community is still predominant. And then when you think again the pervasiveness of social media and the negative imagery of Aboriginal people is still predominant. On this year's VCE, there were 36 texts that students could study for English. There was not one text by an Aboriginal person. I spoke to a teacher recently who's asked me to give a, a lecture on this for the Victorian Association of Teachers of English on November 30 at 9am. I only know that because I'm flying to London to see my daughter at 12 noon. Um, and he sat on the Victorian um, VCE board who select texts for two years before that, hoping to make change. And he was astounded that, yeah, and we know they're out there, the great Aboriginal writers winning Miles Franklin Prizes, yeah. Premiers Awards everywhere, great, great writers. Every text he put forward was rejected. And the general consensus from supposedly liberal-minded um, people on that board was that there, was, there wasn't even a discussion of whether the texts were valid or not. Of these issues, that they, were, they were scared of controversy from the media. They were scared of controversy from school groups. And he said in the end they weren't brave enough. Now, the reason I raise that for teachers here is that where our books are being taught in Victoria is because they're very strong, brave teachers at year 11 where you don't have to go to the central board, who are teaching Aboriginal writing right across the state. And when you do that, when people... The issue is when people pick up a book by Melissa Lukashenko, Alexis Wright, Kim Scott, you two people, and then they see that representation of Aboriginality in the media, which demeans women or other issues around us, they, they have something to contest it. Mm. They have valuable people, valuable characters. So if our kids don't get access to our cultural production... How are they going to ever think – so it needs teachers to, to take the lead with support of, you know, parents and schools groups to say, no, we, change is made by being dynamic and not waiting for some central conservative-led controller to – and this is the other political environment. It's sort of – it's not that these people are right-wing conservatives. They're fearful of right-wing conservatives. So that – loudest voice of con populist conservatism, not even an ethical conservatism, a populist conservatism has really, people have sort of put their heads down and that that's that's a really poor outcome. Thank you. Alison? Yeah, I think you're right. The reaction especially to things like safe schools has um, really led to a chilling effect um, for education advocates to actually be doing the work they need to be doing on behalf of their students. There's also a, a, a difficulty for me in thinking about putting our work on the curriculum um, just because kind of like there's this publication and then there's all this stuff that happens behind the scenes and um, something that we might not know happens behind the scenes and I don't know if either of you two have experienced that. I'm just speaking for myself, um, is that 
book, Aboriginal literature in particular, is almost always leveraged towards its educational values. So can we get this on the curriculum? And that is a key editorial concern. That's a key marketing concern. Um, and and therefore a key concern for if a book gets picked up or not. Yeah, so um, I've had relatively mild discussions about whether or not I could use the word cunt in my books for this reason, um, whether Can it you? would. I, I did. <laughs> I don't know if they've made it on into any curriculum. That's probably why. Um, but, yeah, so that editorial See, I told you I was a coward because I used to have – several of my books have the word cunt in it but not this one for that very reason. We, we were thinking, no, no, we'll go for the market and we'll just call this copper a prick. Did it work? Um, well, it is being taught at year 10. At there, my- there we go. <laughs> this is no, why it, my sales are It so is bad. being taught in Japan as well. And one of the things I found out with my novel, and you raised this word first, so um, <laughs> where my novel was taught in Japan, um, I went to Japan and they, they, they've taught a, bit of, a fair bit of my work. A student put their hand up and said, well, we can't understand some of the stuff, the local stuff. Could you explain this? And I said, what's the word? And she said, construct. <laughs> I'll come back to you. <laughs> Um, we are, unfortunately, on that note, out of time, no. which is great. No. <laughs> no, you, no. <laughs> We're ended that there. We're ended that there. We're no, she ha- there. you have to say something profound. <laughs> I got nothing. Constructs profound enough for me. I didn't know it was going to go this way, but I'm really glad it did. And uh, didgeridoo, Nini, thank you for your time. Thank you. If you'd like to hear more from Wollongong Writers Festival, because trust me, there's some really amazing sessions yet to drop or you just want to hear more from regional writing festivals, then head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the Rights for Festivals podcast, or you can go and subscribe wherever you get your pods, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, all those good places. Please do give us a rating and review because then we can spread the goodness and other people can find us too. Thank you so much for listening to the Rights for Festivals podcast and supporting regional writing festivals. This podcast episode was produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. Podcasts for a positive world.